So this guy is sitting in a bar and he's doing his nightly drink. And in walks a nun. A nun? A nun. Maybe I shouldn't say her name here in this class, but she comes in, she walks straight to his table and she goes, how could you possibly indulge in drinking? Don't you know what kind of a sin it is to drink? And he goes, what do you mean? What do you mean? What's the problem with drinking? She goes on, it can make you tipsy, it makes you think bad, wrong decisions. How could you do this? He says, sister, have you ever had a drink? She says, no way. He says, well, then how would you know? I'll get you a drink. And he'll tell me, if you think it's still bad, I'll give up drinking forever. So she says, I can't do that. Everybody will see me drinking. He says, don't worry. I'll put it for you in a teacup. Nobody will know. So he goes to the counter, goes to the bartender, he says, I'd like to have two cups of vodka on the rocks, one in a glass and one in a teacup. The bartender goes, it's not that nun again, is it? (laughs) (laughs) So we're in the book of Tshuva. The third book of the Tanya is called The Letter of Repentance. And uh, in the first three chapters, really the first quarter of the book, the Alter Rebbe seeks to define the legal parameters of tshuva. What is the halachic Jewish law obligation on tshuva? And he defines it as one thing and one thing only, a commitment moving forward. It's a decision to go back to the relationship that you used to have. You You violated the relationship, forget the regret, that'll come later. Move forward and fix your ways. But then he made a big deal about fasting because fasting appears in Jewish literature a lot in reference to atonement. So the Alter Rebbe, especially because in those times it was considered a big thing, he had to address the concept of fasting and how it fits or doesn't fit into the model of tshuva. And if you follow these three chapters, it's kind of a roller coaster. In chapter one, the Alter Rebbe says fasting is out of the question. It's not part at all of the legal process of tshuva. That's why in no Jewish law books do you have fasting mentioned. Look in the Rambam, look in the Code of Jewish Law, you won't find it there, only in Kabbalistic works. The only time you would fast is for side reasons, like to cancel a decree against the community or maybe to save yourself from spiritual um, suffering in the world to come. (coughs) Then in chapter two, the Alter Rebbe switches gears. He says, but, If you want to know what fasting is good for, it's good for, let's call it a reset. Sometimes when you violate a relationship, you can achieve forgiveness, but then the guy says, but we don't, let's not continue. I don't want to see you again. You fixed it, you made it whole from last time, but we're not moving forward. A person who really wants to get back in relationship will seek to make things the way they were before, as if it never happened. So in biblical times, that was what sacrifices achieved. Korbanot, you brought on the altar that was considered a gift. An extra gift that you give to the king to show you really want to make it work. And nowadays we don't have korbanot, so we have fasting. The Talmud says when a person used to fast, he would pray to God that the lack of fat, you know, the, all the calories that I'm going to lose by not eating, should be as if I brought a korban, as if I brought a sacrifice. So fasting takes the place of sacrifices and it, it enhances the tshuva experience. Tonight we're learning chapter three. 
And here we're going to see two more angles on fasting. Oh, we're getting there. It's part of chapter three. How it applies today is part of chapter three. The first, the opening statement that the Alter Rebbe makes in the beginning of the chapter is what happens if a person does a sin multiple times? Like the nun, once and again and again. In Kabbalah, all it says is the number of fasts per sin. If you commit this transgression, you fast this number of fasts. That transgression, that, but it doesn't say what happens if you do multiple times. So over time, there became an argument among what the Alter Rebbe calls the Chachmei HaMusar, the ethical masters. They had a machlekes, they had an argument. How many times should you fast? Let's say you committed a sin 10 times. And the, the, the fast number is 100 fasts. So what do you do? Does 100 fasts take care of all the transgressions or you gotta do 100 for each time and you're gonna get 1,000 fasts? So fasting was enacted to correspond to sacrifices. So let's take a look at how sacrifices work. One group of sages said, well, fasting should be like the sin offering, the korban chatat. The sin offering was brought once per transgression. Even if you were unaware, you did one transgression, a second transgression, a third one, when you wake up and you realize, you gotta bring three, four, or however many times you transgressed. So too, if you transgressed the sin multiple times today, you gotta fast once per time that you transgressed. The other sages said, no, there's a different kind of sacrifice called the korban ola. And the korban ola can cover many transgressions in one. So you did, you did, you did things. And then at the end, you bring one sacrifice, takes care of everything. So the same thing over here, when you wake up and realize it's time to fast, you fast once for all the previous transgressions. What do you do? There's an argument. One, every time. So there's what's called the hachra'ah mikubelet, the accepted compromise. The accepted compromise is to do three times three times the amount of fasts. Why? Because there's a statement in the Zohar that talks about the desensitization that happens to a soul when you commit a sin. The Zohar says doing a sin is like putting a stain on a piece of clothing. Doing a sin again, the stain gets deeper. When you do a sin a third time, the stain now goes from one side of the cloth to the other side. And the way it explains it is basically each sin gets your soul less sensitive to spirituality. But once you hit a third time, there's a point that you've tipped. There's a border that you've crossed. Now, after that, it's just further and further into that abyss. But the third time is when you make that tipping point. So therefore, when you fast, the sages said, just do three times. Because it's the third time that really got you into that pattern. So if the number of fasts you had to do was 150, you do 450 fasts. It's a lot of fasts. But that's what the sages came to. So the author of it says, now we have the whole conversation around fasting. We see it's not part of the practical tshuva, but it is part of a higher level of repentance. Where do we fit into this? Today, nowadays, how do we navigate this world of fasting? So, Dr. Rebbe says, first off, there's a major, major precondition to fasting. You have to be extra super healthy. As they were in earlier generations when these first fasts were taken on. 
You have to be incredibly healthy. If fasting affects your health adversely, then it's actually forbidden to fast. The Talmud already makes mention of this. It says the only sages that were allowed to fast were those who could bear the physical pain. But those who couldn't and still fasted are called sinners. The fasting itself becomes a sin because it's affecting your health adversely. And certainly the author says if your whole job is a Torah scholar, so by affecting your health, you're not allowing yourself to learn properly, so you're defeating the purpose. So that's, that's the baseline when we even get into the whole conversation of should I fast, shouldn't I fast today? The first question you have to ask yourself is how healthy are you really? Can your body endure day after day after day, a hundred fasts? If you know you can't, don't even go into the process. But then what? I'm too weak, so now I don't get what the fast could accomplish. I don't get to have a reset on my relationship with God. Is there no replacement for me? So the author says there is a replacement. And the replacement is tzedakah. For those that can't fast for health reasons, tzedakah is the replacement. And there's actually an amount per day of fasting, 18 gedolei polish, it's a Polish currency that had in those times of the code of Jewish law, 18 certain coins per day of fasting. So if your sin was 100 fasts, you gotta give 1,800 of those coins to tzedakah. And the tzedakah will accomplish what the fasts could have accomplished. So that assumes that you have the wealth and the ability uh, to compensate. Uh, so the Alter says, and what if, what if it's going to cost me a lot of money? What is a fast entail? Like a fast? Oh, that's a good question. A fast means from sunrise to sunset. Morning to nightfall. Well, it's full day fasting with eating at nights. Day after day after day. So, no water as well, right? No water. No food, no drink. So, you, so th- this is going to cost you a lot. And we have a clear Jewish law, by the way, that you're not allowed to give more than 20% of your wealth to tzedakah. So here you're telling me to start giving all this money for my fast. It's going to come up to a lot more than 20% of my wealth. What do Even I do? If you are Elon Musk. <laughs> if you're Elon Musk, you have other issues, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Elon Musk is fasting. Yeah, this this chapter is not. uh... In fact, he's got someone who fasts for him. Yeah, (laughs) he'll pay them for it too. The uh, what do you do? It's more than twenty percent. You're not allowed to give that much to that. So the Alter Rebbe says, no, that rule doesn't apply in this case. Because the whole rule of not giving more than 20% wouldn't apply if physical health was at stake, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't pinch on anything if your physical life was in danger. You'd give whatever money it took. So why should spiritual health be different than physical health? So as one of my tiny teachers used to say, and what if, what if you're broke? You can't fast and you're literally broke. What do you do then? Because then you don't sin. Then don't get into it. It's a high level. Tzedakah is where it's at. And the author of it says at the end of the chapter, still, even if you give the tzedakah, 
you want to get something of the effect that fasting can create. So while the typical way of doing it would be to fast all the days consecutively, for you, in order to get that effect, what you should do, says the Alter Rebbe, is the following. One round, because you have to do three rounds, that's the accepted compromise if you did this in multiple times. One round, do full days, but stretch them out across your lifetime. So pick, Alter says, pick short days in the winter. Sure. Short days. Once a week. Once every couple of weeks. Every year, you get a couple of fasts in. And over nine, ten years, you get one round of, let's say it's the 150 fast, right? So you get one round of 150. The other two rounds, the author Rebbe says for that, will give you a little dispensation. There's a loophole in the Jerusalem Talmud. It says that a half a day fast is also considered a fast. So what you should do is you should divide each day into two half days and do a bunch of half day fasts as well. So you divide it by eating something like chicken or... No, you just fast till midday and that's it. So you eat something? No, and then fast the next day. No, you've got to fast. It's, it's got to be a unique half day. You don't half get day. two halves in one day. Yeah, you can't. Right, right. No, 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 no. Efficient, but not the same. Exactly. First meal at 2 o'clock. Exactly. First meal at 2 o'clock for all the rest of the time. There's no such thing as double fasting. Intermittent fasting of the, of the time, yeah, exactly. So if, if the fast was 100 fast, right? So you do one round of 100 full days in the winter throughout 9, 10 years. The other 200 for the two more rounds, you divide them in half. So you have 400 half days and you fast 400 half-day fasts. And that way you get both. You give the tzedakah, you get the fasting. The Alter Rebbe says that's why today, anybody who is, he uses the word Haredi, ever familiar with, like ultra-Orthodox, or anybody that's especially meticulous in fulfilling the word of God is giving tzedakah whenever he can. People give tzedakah whenever they can, as much as they can, because there's always something you got to make up for. <laughs> you're never always in, in the green. There's, there's always something you're in the red for. So, just give, just, just, give, just give. Whenever you have a chance, just give something. You, know, you put more into the bank. You did something. Camp the card on file. You know, the best way is in the morning to give like 10 apologies and then use that as backup. <laughs> like kind of, yeah. 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 That's so adorable that he thinks 10 apologies is going to work. That hasn't even moved. That is in the last first 15 minutes of the morning. Come on. So, that needs an apology. That's the mindset. All right. That's the, that's the story on fasting. So, it's not part of tshuva. It helps for the reset. Only if you're healthy, if you're not give tzedakah, but if you can, try to do the three rounds in a split up way. One round full days, two round half days. You had a question? I did, I, I was just wondering whether tzedakah in Judaism also accounts for, uh, you know, if you don't have a means, sort of in kind or service. Mm. Uh, if you're unable to fast, you're unable to pay, so it definitely exists. In the Talmud, it's called Gemilut Chasadim. 
There's two types of kindness. One is called charity, tzedakah is money, and one is called doing acts of kindness. Does it count as tzedakah? So, it or not? so let me share a thought on that, which I was going to get to actually right now, so it ties directly in. There's no question that uh, the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, saw the solution to almost all problems through the lens of tzedakah. Tzedakah was a huge topic for him. We're going to soon come to book four of the Tanya, which is just individual letters that the Alter Rebbe wrote in his own handwriting. Probably 30-40% of them are on tzedakah. He was always extolling the virtues of tzedakah, and this was a man who practiced what he preached. His Mother, his parents-in-law were one of the wealthiest families in the entire region where they lived. His own parents were very well off. When they got married, they gave the couple a very impressive dowry, a very, very impressive dowry. And the altar Rebbe went and gave the entire thing to Tzedakah. He lived in poverty, extreme poverty. He gave everything to Tzedakah. And uh, so much for him was about giving tzedakah and how it takes care of everything. The Rebbe also encouraged tzedakah you know, all, all the time. The whole thing of giving dollars on Sunday wasn't just you know, to have something holy from a tzaddik. He wanted everyone to be trained in tzedakah, literally giving. If me and you meet, two Jews meet, it should be a benefit for a third Jew. Still, and I think it's very important to, to state If you're in a situation where you can't give the tzedakah, legitimately, you can't give it. You're just making ends meet. You're paying your bills, you're paying tuition, it doesn't work. I haven't seen this in the texts, but I've heard this from my Tanya teachers and I believe it to be true. Then it's not your job. Just like today, fasting is not our job, we can't do it, we don't fast, tzedakah becomes our job. If you can't give tzedakah for legitimate reason, then it's not your job. Your job is to learn the third book of the Tanya. It says learning Torah counts. You know, when you learn something, it's as if you did it. The Rebbe himself wrote that. He said if you learn about fasting, it counts for fasting in a way. Not only is it not your job, it could be counter to your mission. The Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe's father, told a story telling stories today, told a story of uh, there was a rich man who had a coachman. That's how it always used to be. The rich man had a driver, take him around from place to place. And one time they took him to a city. And uh, the rich man was able to check into the expensive hotel. The poor man checked into the less expensive, you know, the, the cheaper hotels. So they weren't together on Friday afternoon. They each came to shul from their own directions for Friday night. The rich man, beautifully dressed, ready for Shabbos, as he's walking down the road, he sees a, 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 another guy with his wagon stuck in the mud. There's a mitzvah in the Torah. You have to help someone stuck on the road, the horse, the wagon. He's not going to pass up a mitzvah. So he goes, and he sees if he can help. But the problem is he knows nothing about wagons. You know, it's not just slipping a wagon out of the mud. You've got to have an expertise for it. So after half an hour, the only thing he accomplished was getting the wagon deeper in the mud, and his whole Shabbos suit was full of mud too. So he rose into Shul trying to you know, get the mud off of his suit. Meanwhile, the poor man, the coachman, was ready for Shabbos. He came to Shul early. 
And he sees, as the custom was in those days, all the poor people from the city were sitting around. And so he says, guys, be my guests for Shabbos. All the poor men were invited to the coachman's house. He had two pieces of bread over there. You know, he shared it between 15 people. Everybody left as hungry as they came. He didn't have any money. So when they came to heaven, the, the heavenly court said, something got mixed up over here. The rich man was supposed to be the one to invite the guests. And the coachman was supposed to be the one to fix the wagon. Meanwhile, you each mixed up your mitzvahs, mixed up your purpose, and you became what's called neshamot hato'ot, wandering souls. We have to send you back down so each of you can fulfill the purpose for which you were intended to be there. It's the rich man's job to host guests, and it's the poor man's job to help, co- to help coachmen that are stuck in the mud. You don't take somebody else's life job. So those that have the means to give tzedakah for their job, it's to give tzedakah. Those that don't have the means to give tzedakah, it's not to give tzedakah. It's a, it's a different thing. It's acts of service, or it's something else. Tzedakah has to be with intent. On the other hand, if you could give tzedakah, you must. And the Rebbe made a very interesting point in his commentary on this chapter. He says, you know, it's easy to think that uh, in the olden days, they had the real deal. They were healthy, they could fast, they did Judaism the way it was intended to be. Today, we're not healthy, so we get a little fix, you know, like second class Judaism. Yeah, 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 do tzedakah, it'll work for you too, don't worry. You can't fast, give tzedakah. It's as though we're getting like second place. So the says it's impossible to be that way. Hashem creates the world every single second. If He created the world in this way, at this moment, it means that's the way he intends for Judaism to operate. So kind of like, you know, when uh, Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbos, we don't blow the shofar. In Talmud it says, why don't we blow the shofar? Because we're worried there's going to be a guy who doesn't know how to blow, he's going to carry the shofar, go to the rabbi, teach me how to blow. Really? For the one guy that doesn't know and he's going to carry, all of the Jewish people doesn't blow shofar on Shabbos. That can't be the real reason. It can't be the ultimate, deeper reason. It can't be the mystical reason. Chassidus explains the mystical reason is because on Shabbos, you don't need the shofar. Whatever the shofar accomplishes, Shabbos accomplishes on its own. So the Rebbe says the same thing applies in this, in this area of teshuva. You can't fast. We're not healthy enough to fast. We can only give tzedakah. You know what that means? We don't need to fast. If Hashem set up the world this way where we can't, it means we don't need to. We need to do something else. We need to be giving tzedakah. Still, the Alter Rebbe says that you should try to do the three rounds of fasting, you know, even in a split up way, because if you can, you should strive for that. It's kind of like in book one of the Tanya, years ago, when we're talking about the Benoni, he's supposed to strive to be in control of his thought, speech, and action. He's not supposed to be a tzaddik who's in control of his emotions as well. But once in a while, you've got to strive for that. You've got to try to be somewhat emulate the ways of a tzaddik. Because part of the oath that your soul was made to make was to heat tzaddik. You have to be a tzaddik in some way or another. So in the same way, you can adopt some kind of practices of fasting a little bit, one round, three rounds, half days, full days. We do something. Then there came a time we couldn't even do that. 
individuals in the generation could fast. You know, the Rebbe could fast, but for us, fasting is not for us. The Rebbe said last week in 1988, he outlawed fasting completely. He said, no more fasting for Chabad. Except for the sixth halachic fast, obviously, I'm Kippur. I'm saying fast for Teshuvah. It's out of the question. Give tzedakah if you want to fix it up. Fasting today always defeats the purpose. In 1969, there was a guy who came to the Rebbe uh, for the holidays, and he came into a private audience, and the first thing the Rebbe said to him was, you look like you're living in the time before book three of the Tanya was printed. He looked so pale and skinny, like as if he was fasting. The Rebbe said, you know, we have Tanya today. We know that we don't fast nowadays. Nowadays we do tzedakah. It's a different, it's a different style. The Rebbe told him, and later on said it for bringing publicly, you could learn these chapters, learn about fasting, it'll count for that. But don't go around fasting. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not our job. It's very interesting that this became the Hasidic position. You know, in, in Jewish works, there were two approaches as to how to treat the body. One stated, the strength of the body is the weakness of the soul. Strength of the soul is weakness of the body. That's how they, it's mutually exclusive. You feed your body too much, you're taking away from the soul. You feed your soul, it's gonna come at the cost of the body. That's the way they looked at it. The Rambam, who was the legal codifier, the philosopher, he said, no, serving God has to be with a complete body. That's the way to serve Hashem. And you would think that Hasidism would follow in the way of Kabbalah, but no. The, the Baal Shem Tov kind of synthesized the two worlds. He said, we're gonna, in this case, we're gonna take the halachic standpoint, which is only a healthy body is a healthy soul. In fact, his student, the Magid, advocated for that greatly. His own son, the Magid's son, fasted tremendous amounts. And when the Magid was on his deathbed, he called over his son, he said, you should know, a small hole in the body is a big hole in the soul. A klein lechele in guf is a grisa lechele in the shama. that's what he said. He said, my final last will and testament to you is that when I pass away, you stop this custom of fasting. And he didn't stop. He said, I can't replace my father of flesh for my father of heaven. He had his own, he was a tzaddik in his own right. The Alter Rebbe, when he heard that comment, he said, how could you call the Magid a father of flesh? You know what the Magid was? He was a Rebbe. He didn't take that itself. But the Hasidic position definitely, even from the beginning, was less fasting, less focus on painting the body, less, fo- less focus on abusing the body. The body is a tool. The body is Hashem's present to you to be able to be the conduit to serve Him spiritually. You can't misuse it. Is this the position of all the Hasidim or only Chabad as far as prohibition of fasting today? Today it became unanimous. It's unanimous. Yeah. There were different branches in the early days that did focus on fasting, but Chabad ever since the beginning was minimizing fasting to the, most extent, to, to the biggest extent possible. The Rebbe's always fasted, but of course, they're on a different level. But the way they treated their Hasidim, never, never fasting. There's, we have one I think it's only one handwritten letter from the Baal Shem Tov. Besides for his sitter, we have a handwritten version of his sitter, but we have one piece of handwritten work, extant, and you know what it is? It's to his student telling him to stop fasting. That's the one note that we have. Wow. So it's like... Uh, but, but where is this letter now? Russia? No, it's in the Chabad library. In Chabad library? Yeah, yeah. There's pictures of it online. 
Yeah, there's another half of Chabad Library stuck in Russia. I hope we do get it one day. Chabad Library in Crown, is it on Crown Line? Yeah. Yeah, because they don't really show it to the public. It's underground and it's a quarter million books. It's, it's huge. So, um, so that's, that's the story. Maybe he meant uh, fasting from things like uh, binge watching on Netflix. Oh, uh, that's, that's a gishmak. You just reminded me of a good story. Remember? Yes. Very good. Very good. Remember we talked about Iskafia back in book one? Changing now to no? So there was a, there was a mentor. There was a mentor in France, in the Chabad Yeshiva in France, who came to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe said, I heard that you talk to the boys about Iskafia and eating. You tell them to hold themselves back from eating. The Rebbe says, that's not today's job. Today you should talk to the boys about Iskafia in their thoughts and in their speech. You want to hold back, hold back in what you say. Control what you think. Eating, you have to eat good. You have to be healthy Jews. So as we finish this quarter, this section of the third book, and next week we're moving on to the mystical elements of tshuva. It's going to go a deep dive into very soulful parts of tshuva. We close the legal part with the Alter Rebbe's message that fasts while they can complete the tshuva experience. They're not a part of it. The act of tshuva, the act of return, is simply to say, I'm moving my life forward. And I'm moving my life forward in a way that's aligned and synchronized with the will of Hashem. Achayim. Yeah.